Well, God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today, and thanks so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there, so we bring that service to you, wherever you are, as you know, anywhere in Israel, anywhere in the world. And we hope you'll be encouraged today by the message, and you'll discover God's peace and His promises in your life. Now, would you open in your Bibles to the New Testament, Habrita Chadasha, ha Brit ha Chadasha. That's how we say it in Hebrew. To the Book of John, Hasefer Yochanan, the Book of John and Perek Shtaim, or Chapter Two. That's where we're going to be today. And as you know, we'll also put those verses up here for you in the video, just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about the miracle worker. You know, we're continuing in our study through the book of John. And remember, as we started the book of John, that it's the bridge between the Tanakh, or as you would say in English, the Old Testament, and Habrita Chadashah, or the New Testament, as you would say in English. And this book speaks of the one who is the bridge between God and mankind. So not only is the book of John the bridge between the Old and New Testament, the Tanakh and Habrita Chadashah, but it also speaks of the one who is the bridge between God and mankind. Now remember from the last two weeks that chapter 1 of the book of John made some really bold claims, didn't it? In fact, claiming that God would become a man and that he would be the one to save mankind from eternal judgment because of their sins. Sin can't come into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is where we can live forever. What are we going to do? God saw the dilemma. He became a man. He lived the perfect life, keeping his own law at all the time, every second, every moment of every year of, of the life of the Messiah on earth, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the anointed one. And as that man, he became qualified to give his life. Since he had no sin of his own, he was qualified to become the atonement. Hakipur, hakapara, for the sins of mankind, he became the atonement. Since in, uh, sin entered the world through man, Adam, Adam as you would say in English, it had to be atoned for through man, taken out of the world um, through man. But there was no man on all of the face of the earth who didn't have any sin. In fact, God said it two times in the book of Psalms, once in the book of Yeshayahu Hanavi, Isaiah the prophet, that he looked throughout the entire earth to try to search for a man who always did righteousness, who always sought after God and wanted to do good. And it says, sadly, in all three of those places in the scripture, in the Tanakh, that he found none, no, not one. Now, why was he searching? Because there needed to be a man without sin to be the atonement to take sin out of the world from mankind permanently. Not just, not just take it away for a year, but take it out permanently so that then those people who are forgiven under that kapara, under that atonement, they could have entry into the kingdom of heaven with the king of heaven. God himself, and he would give them everlasting life in his presence. But if they couldn't get into the kingdom of heaven because of their sin, they didn't have that everlasting life and they would perish. 
not just perish like physical death on this earth, but perish spiritually, have eternal separation from God, that would be horrible. That would be horrible. So we see now that God had to become this Messiah that he had been speaking of throughout the Torah, throughout the Tanakh. And the first three chapters in this book of John that we're studying now are going to show the deep sacrificial love that God has for you. In fact, no other chapters in all of the Bible explains God's love quite like these first three chapters of the book of John. Together with chapter 1 that we studied last week and chapter 2 that we're looking at today, these first three chapters in John are telling the greatest love story ever told, by far. The greatest love story ever told. And the chapter that we're going to be looking at one week from today is very, very important. So important that I call that chapter that we're studying today, chapter 2, the introduction for next week's chapter, chapter 3. So chapter 2, even though it's got a lot of good lessons in it itself, what it is really doing is setting up the scene for chapter 3. The things that we see in this chapter today in chapter 2, we're going to be taking a very central role in next week's message. So this message today is very important. Very important to understand. Now let's look at the book of John chapter 2 and starting at verse 1. It's a short chapter. We'll be pausing a couple of times to talk about some key points along the way to the end of the chapter, which is only 25 verses long. So starting at John 2 and verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Verse 3, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus, that would be Mary, said to him, They have no wine. And verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. <clears throat> now, in verse 6, it says, Now there were about six water pots of stone, they didn't have plastic, didn't have Tupperware in those days. These things were made out of stone. They were big, they were heavy. And it said there were six water pots of stone in verse 6 according to the manner of purification of the Jews. Because the Jews would always wash before their, meet, uh, their meals and everything. And this was a wedding. There was going to be a wedding feast. So they had to do all these things. Well, these water pots of stone were really large. They contained 20 or 30 gallons apiece. That possibly means that some of them were 20 and some were 30, but there were six big pots of stone that contained water or could contain water. And then it says in verse 7, Jesus said to them, said to the servants there, fill the water pots up with water. Fill those water pots with water. And so they filled them up to the brim, up to the top, right to the top to where it's almost spilling out. Verse 8, then he said to them, now take some out, draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast, the master of the wedding ceremonies. And so they did. They took it to the master. In verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who drew it out, they knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom over. In verse 10, he said to the bridegroom, you know, every man... 
at the beginning of the wedding feast sets out the good wine. But when people have, have drank enough of it and they, they really don't care if it's good or not anymore after that, I guess, then the lesser wine or the inferior wine is what they bring out. But the master of the feast said, but you've kept the best wine. You've kept the good wine until now. So the, Jesus not only turned the water into wine, but as far as wine goes, it was the best wine. Was it just wine? It was a miracle that he turned water into wine, 20 to 30 gallons in each one of those six stone pots, and all of that water he just turned into wine. He probably watched them fill it up. He said, now fill it up, fill it up to the top. They all filled it up to the top. We know that there were multiple servants who were filling these things up because it calls them servants, plural. So there were multiple ones. They filled it up with water. Each one of them knew that there was water going into those pots and they were filling up. Then Jesus said, now take out some, pour it a cup there, take it over to the master of the feast. So they did. They took it over there to the master of the wedding feast and everything, gave it to him to sample the, 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 uh, the wine. Remember, just a minute ago, they had put water in those pots. And now... They pulled out some of that water, or it used to be water, and now it's wine. The servants looked at it. Can you imagine? I mean, let's just read in between the lines a little bit here. <laughs> they, they, they looked at it. He wants us to take some of that water to the master of the feast. This is not going to go over good. He's, he's going to talk to the bridegroom and have words with him because he's serving his guest water when you usually serve wine at the, at the wedding feast and everything. So the servants pour, poured out the water, and we don't know when it became wine. It looks like that it became wine actually before they took it out. But just a few seconds earlier, they saw that they had put water in. It wasn't wine. There was no wine in there. They were empty, and so they filled it up with water. And even if wine was in there, a little bit of wine, they poured the water in. It wouldn't look like and it wouldn't taste like wine. But they poured out a cup. They didn't say anything about it to the master of the feast. They took it over to him, and he said, Wow. This is really good. Call the bridegroom over here. I want to compliment him for what he's done because most of the time they serve the good stuff at first and then after people don't care anymore, then they serve the really inferior wine. But you've kept the best for last. That's what he's saying. You've kept the good wine until now. And then there, this section of verses ends up at verse 11 and 12. It says, and this was the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And he manifested his glory. He showed his glory. What does that mean? He was showing them that there was a miracle there that only God could do. And his disciples believed in him, it says in verse 11. Verse 12, and after this he went down to Kepharnachum. Now you say, what are you saying, Stephen? That's Capernaum. Well, actually, you know, the Jewish word for village is kafar. Kafar is village. Okay, well, that's fine, you say, but this is kepar, not kefar. Well, I want to tell you that the letter for the P and the letter for the F in Hebrew are the same letter. There's just a tiny dot at one place that tells you whether to pronounce that letter as puh or fuh. And one is called the soft sound. That's the fuh with the F sound. But the puh is the hard sound. So Capernaum, it's 
Actually, in Hebrew, you change that pa sound to a fa, and it's kafar nechem. And now kafar is village. Nachum is actually a biblical name. You can look it up in the book of Genesis. He was a person that was talked about in the Bible, kafar nachum. It was a person. So the village of Nachum is what that is, what's that, that saying. So it says that he went down to Kafar Nachum, he and his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. They didn't stay there. We know from later on in the New Testament that at least one time when he went to Capernaum, that they wouldn't receive him because they knew him. They felt like they knew his family and everything, and they wouldn't receive him. And Jesus himself said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. That's what it had said. That's what it had prophesied in the Tanakh. And so he actually noticed that, that when he went there, people didn't believe in him because they had seen his family. They knew from where he came from. So they weren't believing anything about him. They didn't realize that God could use the body of an ordinary man. That God could cause himself to be born into the life of a tiny little infant and be born out the womb just like any other child. And yet that child from the womb would be God who became a man. Jesus was not some man who one day his disciples said, well, I think we should say that he's God. That wasn't the case. God looked down and knew that mankind needed someone without sin to be their sacrifice for removing sins permanently from, from creation, from mankind, so that mankind could be admitted into the kingdom of heaven without sin and stay in his presence so that they could have everlasting life. And so God in his love and compassion for mankind allowed himself to become that little child, to grow up, to grow up, and then when he was of age, of course, keeping his own law at all times, every moment, every, every second of every year of the life, Hasheshmot, Shaloshes, Re Mitzvot, the 613 commands of the Torah, kept them every one all of the time. Why? So that he would qualify. Think about this. So he would qualify to die for them. So that he would qualify to give his life for them. And then having kept that law all of his time later on the cross, he decides to go through with it. He had kept himself all of this time from any sin at all, resisting temptation that is common to you and I, but he without sin. He resisted it always so that he would qualify to die for us. And his sacrifice as the blemish-free Pesach, Lamb of God, you see, the story was foretold in Pesach, my Jewish brother and sister, Yehudim, Mazeomer, Zeal Pesach. It's all about Passover. It's all about Passover, my Jewish brothers and sisters. And God had foretold the story. And now he's going to become that blemish-free lamb of God, give his life for us, the greatest love story ever told. Now, as we look at these verses, we see that, well, of course, the water into the wine. But notice that when Mary was talking to her son, Yeshua, remember he was not the son of Joseph, he was the son of God for the father's side, but he was born of the seed of the man through woman, okay, Mary. 
So Mary was his physical mother, even though the Holy Spirit, God, was his father. Okay, and Jesus told her when she said they ran out of wine. And what did he answer? <clears throat> he said, my time has not yet come. That's what he said. But then notice what she said. She turned to the servants and, and she said to them, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I, I like the way that it shows this because in a way, God feels our hurt. He feels his compassion toward us. And if you seek him, even though it might not have been his original plan, there's times when he will answer you simply because you asked. Why do I say that? Because Mary said they ran out of wine. And Jesus, he said, woman, what does that have to do with me? This is not yet my time. And then she didn't even say anything else. She turned to the servants and said, whatever he says to you, do it. It's like she knew that he had a big heart and that he was going to be merciful and take care of the situation even though it wasn't part of the plan for his life at that particular time, you see. But yet, he did. He answered that prayer. He answered that need even though it wasn't part of the plan for his life at that time because he himself said so. Woman, it's not my time. And then... He answered it anyway. It's like she knew that her son Yeshua, the Messiah, God made flesh, would have the compassion and the mercy to go ahead and answer this and somehow make the wine. Somehow. That's the way God is. He feels our hurt. He feels compassion toward us. And if you seek him with your whole heart, you will find him. That's what the Tanakh says in the book of Yeremiah Hanavi, Jeremiah the prophet. It says, the Lord says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Now notice the things that Mary said. She said two things. They don't have any more wine. And then she said, do whatever he tells you. What do you notice about that? Neither one of those are questions. They're not questions. She's not asking him anything. She's simply mentioning the problem that they're facing. I think it's wonderful how she asked him without asking for anything in particular. What am I saying? So many times when we go to God in prayer, we tell God what we want him to do for us. But usually our requests are based on human reasoning and what we think is possible. Mary didn't tell him how to fix the problem. She just mentioned that there's a problem. And then she let the Lord decide how to fix the problem in the way that he wanted to work. Do you do that when you pray? Or do you find yourself asking God to fix things in the way that you wanted them fixed? In the way that, this is the way that we should pray, just like Mary did she she did this without asking them to do things specifically for instance you might be praying for a boat to get across the water because that's what you think you need and you think that well okay people go across the water on boats but who are you asking you're asking god god might not want to give you a boat god might want to part the water himself carry you through on dry ground just to show you how much his power is and, and how much he loves and cares for you.
Don't limit God. He's not limited by the things that limit you. Just tell God what you need. Stop telling him how to fix your problems. He knows your needs before you even ask him. Just tell him what you're facing. Let him delight you in showing you the amazing way that he's going to get you through that trial. Now let's talk about that water he turned into wine. Of course, you've heard probably sermons about this. There it is. And we're going to talk about it. We're not going to miss that. There's more than a simple report of a miracle there that the Lord did when the wedding host ran out of wine that day. Yes, it was an amazing miracle in itself that the Lord did back then, turning that water into wine. Well, that's nice. It comes in handy sometimes. I know sometimes I've, I've run out of ketchup, and I prayed that, Lord, just let me have just enough for these French fries. Uh, that's a bad example. But anyway, you see what I'm getting at. But he used that particular miracle not only to make the wine from the water, but also through the centuries to show you and I something else. To show all the other people that would look at his story through the centuries, he did that to show us something else. He did it to show what he wants to do in our lives even now, all these years later. Here's what I'm saying. You may feel that your life is not so special. In fact, you may be feeling that your life is pretty messed up right now. That trial you're facing just won't go away. Everything in life just seems upside down right now. But here's the message that God wants to give you today. He can turn your water into wine. He can take what's ordinary and not special, turn it into something special, beautiful, and valuable. He's, as we would say in Hebrew, habore. Habore, the creator of all things. He spoke heaven and earth into existence out of nothing. Remember Genesis 1.1 in Hebrew. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim v'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created them out of nothing. He placed the stars and the galaxies in the heavens. He positioned the sun and the moon and all the universe precisely where he wanted everything. And again, he spoke it all into existence from nothing. And that's what that word bara means. Bereshit, in the beginning, bara, Elohim. In the, in the beginning, Elohim created bara and bara is a special verb it's not like he didn't just put some ingredients together and make a cake or make a universe bara is a word that only god can use bara means to make something from nothing you get it you see the difference other people can make some stuff and everything i heard the story of course maybe you've heard it about the scientists who who said to God, well, God, our technology has improved so much that we now, can, we now have the technology to make a man. And so, and God said, well, let's have a man-making contest then. You make a man in the way you think you can, and I'll make a man uh, in, in the way that I do. And the scientist said, okay. And so the scientist got some dirt, and he started to pull the minerals out from it and everything so that he could have the chemical content to start his test tube thing. And God said, wait a minute. Get your own dirt. <laughs> God made that dirt, too. God made everything, you see. It's interesting, too, by the way, just a little side note, that Adam, Adam, as you would say in English, Adam in Hebrew means dirt. <laughs> dirt. 
So Adam was taken from the Adama. Adama is dirt. And that's where his name came from. Adam is taken from the Adama. God said, I'm going to call him Adam because he was taken from the Adama. You see, that's how that works. Man was taken from the dirt. And if you've got a little boy, a son or something like that, who goes out and plays in the dirt, you could see how they still like to play in that dirt. God is not interested in things that you have of value to give to Him. You're not having to barter with God. You don't have to trade with God. He spoke all things into existence from nothing. He doesn't need anything that you have. He's not interested in what you have. He's interested in you. He created you in His image to be His child. And the same creator that spoke the universe into existence will speak your blessings into existence even when it doesn't look like there's any chance for you to be blessed. He'll make a way when there's no way. Yes, he can do the improbable, but he specializes in the impossible. He can take your nothing and he can turn it into something. In fact, something beautiful. You just give him that water. You watch what he'll do with it. And just like Mary said to the servants that day, she said, do whatever he says to you. Who is Jesus? Remember from chapter 1, the first few verses of the, uh, chapter 1 in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hmm. So there it is. Jesus is the Word of God. He is God right there along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And He's the Word of God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word of God. What is the Word of God? The written Word of God. The Hadavar uh, Elohim, the thing of God, the, the testimony of God. All that He wants to communicate to mankind is right there in His written Word of God. I know some rabbis will tell you, well, no, there's other things that have been revealed to the rabbis through the centuries, and those are just as important. The interesting thing is the first half of the Talmud, the Mishnah Torah, those writers then didn't agree with the rabbis today. They said, no, the written word of God takes preeminence. It is the thing that we finally have the answers in, if there's any discussion at all about which is right. It always comes down to the written Word of God. Anytime you think the Lord is telling you something, here's what I'm saying. Since He's the Word become flesh, and anytime you think the Lord is telling you to do something, it will be confirmed in the Bible, the written Word of God. And if the written Word of God doesn't agree with what you feel, with your emotions and your feelings about what you need to do, then guess what? It's not God who's telling you to do it. He gave us the written Word that we might know right from wrong, that we might know His heart, that we might know the things that He approves of and the things that He disapproves of. His Word is our guide in life. You stay anchored to the Word of God, and then when His Holy Spirit moves you, the Holy Spirit will always move you in a way that honors the Word of God and agrees with His Word. In fact, Jesus Himself said that the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will bring into your remembrance all the things that He said, His Word. 
The Holy Spirit will always honor God's word. And remember in the Tanakh in Psalm, Asefetelim, Beperek Mea, Beshloshem Bishmone, Bepasuk Stein, in Psalm 138, verse 2, God says that he honors his word above all his name. That's important to God. That's how important it is. His name is who he is, and yet he honors his word above all his name. What am I saying? You should also honor his word. Never let your emotions dictate what you think you need to do to honor God. You look in the word of God. If what you're thinking doesn't honor the word of God, if it goes against what the word of God teaches and says, then you better throw that away because you're not getting your instructions from the spirit of God. You're getting it from some other spirit, you see. Don't be fooled by your emotions and your feelings and that tingling in your back or whatever it is. Oh, I just shivered when I thought about this. Okay, you shivered. Well, maybe you were cold. Maybe it was something that startled you or something. But if it doesn't agree with the Word of God, it's not from God, period. You should honor God's Word like He honors His Word above all your human reasoning and emotions, you should honor God's word. Then the Lord will honor you and make your path straight. Now the Passover over the Jews was at hand, it says in verse 13 as we continue, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In verse 14, and he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers there doing the business in the temple of God. Verse 15, and he made a whip out of cords and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers uh, tables, uh, money and overturned the tables. And verse 16, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. This isn't a store, he's telling them. This is not a place for you to make money. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, actually in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And that was speaking of the Messiah saying those things all the way back in the Tanakh. Zeal for your house had eaten me up. Now, he came to Jerusalem is what these verses above said. And the three pilgrimage festivals that we have amongst the Jewish people is first of all, uh, those three pilgrimage festivals are special festival times, and they're called in Hebrew the Shalosh Regalim. Shalosh Regalim. And Regal Regalim is just legs, you know, the, the three times when you, when you make the trip to Jerusalem, if you will. Three major festivals uh, in Judaism. One is Passover. We say it in Hebrew, Pesach. So one of the festivals is Pesach, or Passover. The second is Shavuot, or the Festival of Weeks, sometimes called Pentecost as well. The third one is Sukkot. A sukkah is a, is a, a tent or a dwelling that's a temporary dwelling put up out in the wilderness. Sukkot is simply the plural of sukkah. And it commemorates the time when Israel had been brought out of Egypt by God, and they were traveling in the wilderness, and they dwelt in Sukkot or tabernacles or tents, if you will. They didn't have permanent houses, built structures, because they were always traveling. Whenever the Lord stopped, they would stop. When the Lord started moving again, they would wrap up the tent and they would go again. So those Sukkot, what you would call tabernacles or tents, or maybe even booths in English, that's what they were living in 
during the time. And a pilgrimage was something that all the Jewish men had to make three times a year during those three feasts. Pesach, Shavuot, Ve, and Sukkot, you see. Now, Jesus then, of course, being the most famous Jew who ever lived, certainly as a Jewish young man, uh, was... Uh, fulfilling this in the law of God. God had told him to come to Jerusalem for these times of observance of Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And he was there in Jerusalem, but he saw these people selling lambs for sacrifices. He saw the people changing money from the currency that they had to the currency of Israel. Because remember that Jewish people from all over the world now were coming into Jerusalem because they were required to by the Torah, the law of God. They had to come, and maybe they lived in Greece, maybe they lived in Italy, maybe they lived in these other regions and places, but they would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem because that's what they were required to do, and they did this to serve and to worship God. But when they got there then, think about what happened. And I owe what I'm about to tell you to Pastor Jason Duff, a dear, dear friend of mine, actually a son-in-law, a great pastor, great teacher of the Word. He really did his research on this, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell you what he said. It's, it's amazing, I think. He said at that time, the people would bring their lambs for sacrifices because they knew they were going to make a sacrifice for their sins, and they had to make it at the temple during these feasts, right? But then... The lamb had to be inspected, but the priest there in Jerusalem had set up people to inspect the lambs that the other people would bring, and then they would find fault in it somehow. They say, oh, this is not going to do. Uh, this, this has got some problems there because you're supposed to be a lamb without spot, without blemish, right? And then they would you know, like make some sort of complaint about, no, we can't use this lamb for the sacrifice. And the guy goes, what am I going to do? I brought it all the way in my journey so I can make a sacrifice for my sins. And now here I am in Jerusalem, many, many, many miles from home. And I've got this lamb. And what am I going to do? And the guy would basically say, well, it's your lucky day. Because we just happen to have some lambs over here that we've already certified as being acceptable for the sacrifice. And then they might bring one of these lambs out and it looks horrible. Looks like it's not healthy at all. You know, I've got all these problems. And the lamb that this man, this poor man brought on his journey looked far better than that lamb. But the, and he says to the priest, he said, are you sure that that's acceptable? He goes, oh, yeah, we've already accepted it. It's, it's certified, and you can have it today for only this much money. And they would sell it to the guy, you see. But then when he went to pay for that lamb, there was another problem. He brought his money from Greece, from Italy, from wherever he came from along the Mediterranean, in the rest of the civilized world at that time, you see. He brought his own money. And then the money changer would say, oh, you can't pay for that with that money. You've got to have Jewish money. He goes, well, I don't have Jewish money. Well, we can exchange your money for this money. But then they would cheat them on the exchange rate and sometimes take as much as five times more money from his currency than what was really equal to the Jewish money that he was given. So it turns out not only does he have to buy a sacrifice lamb there at the temple because of dishonest priests 
and people that worked for them. But he, they even cheated him out of his money by giving him a, an exchange rate that wasn't accurate, that wasn't honest. So in Matthew 21, verse 13, that also talks about this time when he drove them out of the temple, the people who were trying to sell these sacrifices and change the money, Matthew 21, 13 gives a little bit of extra insight into it. It reported that Jesus said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer by all the nations. And he was quoting that again from Isaiah 56, verse 7. But then he goes on in Matthew's account to say, But you have made it a den of thieves. So altogether, Jesus is saying when he's driving them out, My house, it is written, My house, the and he's saying, my house. What is that? It's the house of God. Beit Elohim, it's the house of God, the temple of God. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer by all the nations, not just the Jewish people, all the goyim, all the nations. Kol goyim, okay? All who seek God can find him. And God desires to be found by all mankind because he made all mankind Betzalem Elohim. Okay, in his image. He made all mankind in his image. The Jewish people are chosen and special and have special purposes in the heart of God. No doubt. But God loves everybody. And he wants everyone to repent and turn to him and be saved. He doesn't want anyone to perish in hell. God is love. He's a God of love. He's a God of compassion. He, he takes no pleasure, the Bible says, in the death of the wicked, but rather they should repent and return to him and be saved. Now it goes on in verse 18, then as we start wrapping this chapter up, it says, so the Jews answered and said to him as he was driving these people out, what sign do you show to us since you're doing these things? Keep in mind that these are the same Jews that are in, that are in partnerships in a way, I guess, that with the people who were changing the money, with the people who were selling these other lambs as sacrificial lambs. They were making money off of this. And now they're upset at him because he's driving out the money changers, because he's driving out the people who are taking advantage of the people who have turned the house of God into a marketplace. Not only a marketplace, but a marketplace where dishonest thieves are robbing people. They're robbing people in the ways that they deal with them. Dishonesty. The book of Proverbs says in the Tanakh, God hates deception of any kind. He likes just scales and balances. Everything has got to be honest before God. He hates deception. He hates lies. And when you're telling people something that's not true like that and selling them something they don't need and changing them money to where you take more of their money than you should be taking for what you're giving in return, that's a lie, and God hates lies. In fact, he says liars will not have any part in the kingdom of heaven. Now, in verse 19, Jesus answered and said to him, he said, they're asking for a sign, remember, in verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you're doing these things? In other words, show us some miracle so that we can know that you have the authority to do these things in the house of God. And Jesus said, okay, here's a sign for you. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. <laughs> the Jews like just sit back and they go like, 
It took 46 years to build this temple, it says in verse 20, and you're going to raise it up again in three days? Ha! Huh. Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Yes, they were standing in the temple, T2, temple 2, that we've talked about before as we go through the scriptures. He was standing in this beautiful place that Herod had called a redesign, but it was magnificent architecture and stones as big as school buses weighing tens of tens of tons and just amazing how big these stones were constructing this temple and now Jesus is standing there saying you destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days but he didn't point to the stones he was talking about the temple of his body he said destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days now that's important because he was talking about the temple of his body Therefore, it says in verse 22, when he had been risen from the dead later, as we see in the Gospels, his disciples remembered that he had said this to the people and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. They saw that he was fulfilling the scriptures, not only in zeal for the temple uh, and driving out the money changers and that verse in Isaiah about you've made my house a den of thieves, but also the verses pertaining to his resurrection. Now we look at Yeshua in these verses, Jesus, and we see that the true place of worship of God in your life is your life, your own body. Jesus himself called his temple, called his body the temple. Yes, there's a temple that's a building, and it, yes, it was built to honor God. But if you worship, if the worship of God that you do is only about going to a building, then you're not understanding worshiping in spirit and in truth. You may look like a godly person on Shabbat. You may look like a godly person on Sunday. But who are you the other days of the week? When you view your whole life as the place where God is worshiped, it will affect how you live your life every day of the week. Now let's finish the chapter. Verse 23 on. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. There it is. That's another one of the things that you need to know. Not only did he make the water into wine, but he saw the, they saw the signs that he did. That's very important because these two instances where it's talking about the miracles that he performed is going to be the connection in chapter 2 that gives meaning to what we're going to study next week in chapter 3. Turns out a very important Jewish sage is going to come to visit Jesus by night. And he's going to talk about the signs that Jesus did. And we're going to read about that next week. But just right now, verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. Verse 24, But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men. Verse 25, And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, because he knew what was inside man. He knew what was in man. They saw the signs that he did. Signs were proof that God was with him. What are you going to do when you see these miracles that only God can do? Are you going to have an argument with this man? You see, the resurrection showed that God approved of Yeshua's life and his claims that he made and that he accepted his death on the cross 
as an atonement for the sins of mankind. It showed that God approved of the Messiah, Yeshua, and the way he lived his life, the way he kept himself, and the giving of his life. And so God was with him all the time, showing to other people, this is the one that I've sent. This is the one that I approve of. As Jesus himself would say elsewhere in the New Testament, I can only speak what the Father gives me to speak. That's what he said. That's what Jesus said. I can only speak what the Father gives me to speak. So he's bringing the words of God, and they're not receiving him, you see, because they've got other agendas. They're trying to look godly, but they're not acting godly. And as Yeshua spoke the words of the Father, then God the Father gave signs and wonders following him to show everyone that Yeshua was the one who he had sent, that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah and the Lord. And that God the Father approved of what Yeshua was doing and what he was saying. Now next week, very famous, respected Jewish sage, like I said to you, is going to go to Yeshua and pour his heart out to him. You don't want to miss next week. You be sure to be there. The verses in that chapter have been called the mini Bible. The mini Bible. They tell of the heart of God in a way that people had never known him before. Don't you miss it. Amen. And why don't you give your life to the Lord today, right now? If you call out to him, he'll hear that cry. He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness you're in. He'll shine his light on your heart. And you'll be given a new life. He'll change you into a new person. Throw all those past failures away. You'll be made completely new, given a new start. And he'll give you everlasting life in heaven. And that's guaranteed by God himself. I'd like to give you an opportunity to believe in Yeshua today as a Messiah and Lord. And to receive this peace that we're talking about in your own life. God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent his one and only son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something simple. Just from the heart. Mean it. Pray something like this if you wish. You can even repeat it after me if you'd like. Just say, God, I do want to know you. I do want to have this real peace in my life. I need this peace he's talking about, Lord, in my life. Please, Lord, come into my life. I believe on your son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Forgive all my sins, I pray. I give my life to you. And thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I'll tell you something. God did hear you, and he's already even started working in your life. A little seed's been planted deep down in your own heart, whether you know it or not. And over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful changes that God's making in your heart. It takes a little while for that seed to break through the ground, remember, but things are going to start happening now. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about the Lord every day in his word. You talk to him every day in prayer. I'll tell you, he's going to do beautiful things in your life. 